Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready. Happy Australia Day, everyone. I hope stuff is working out. As a cricket fan, it feels so, so wrong to have been feeling sympathetic for you guys recently. But I hear, and I hear this from uh, Steve Amy, our video editor in Australia, that you are getting some rain and you are getting some relief out there. So uh, from everyone here in England, we cannot wait for everything to be cool again for you guys so that we can just get back to kicking lumps out of each other. Uh, I'm also joined by my co-host, as I so often am, Matt Two Rumpets. How's it going, Matt? Uh, it's going quite well. Good to see you again. I abandoned you last week to do tech time all by yourself. Yes, it was a great deal of fun. It was good to see Summers again. And boy, oh boy, is there a lot of tech stuff to be talked about. So uh, hopefully we'll be doing another one in the not too distant future. I promise you, right, I know I always say I listen to Tech Time and it's normally a horrible lie. I did listen to it, but I listened to it as I was falling asleep very, very late at night after a night out. So some of it might have been absorbed. I I don't know. Yes. Well, I think that's how it's intended to come across. It sort of seeps into your subconscious. And before you know it, you find yourself talking about vortices and heave elements. And Yeah. So basically, yes. what you can do is you listen to Tech Time. Here's the incentive to listen to Tech Time. Firstly, never slept better. Secondly, you can just memorize a few key terms from Summers. You can skip back 30 seconds, just memorize a few key terms. And then when you're at work, you can speak with that unearned authority of an F1 technical expert. That is the number one reason to listen to Tech Time. Oh, it's the off season. Uh, We have noticed that a few publications have been getting back into the action early, but we have been here with you all off off season. We had one single week off, which is more than we normally do here at Missed Apex. And I have to say, this is a fantastic time of year podcast wise, Matt, because actually we get a lot of emails over the off season. 
Yeah, we do. It's nice. We hear more from viewers and, and we tend to find some, some new audience. Although I will point out the only reason we had a week off is because you refused to record my genius lyrics for the 12 days of Christmas. Only it was the 21 races of F1. Okay, for some I, reason, I, people thought we'd be too long. I appreciate this is a bit waffly than normal intros, but I, I want the Missed Apex listeners to know that I saved you. Okay, Matt was pushing really hard to do a full rendition 12 days. Of, it was like going to be half an hour of that. I, You guys, you owe me. You owe me big time. I was going to say less than five minutes, but okay half an hour that's how it sounded i want to say thank you very much for all the messages i I have taken on more freelance work because because it's the winter period and mist apex takes a little bit less of my time so i have actually got a bit behind and i do apologize feel free to re-forward your email to me to bring it to my attention spannersready at gmail.com i know i got a little bit behind but i will catch up thank you very much for those we love hearing from you and We've had a flurry of iTunes reviews as well, which has been absolutely fantastic. Please keep them coming in. They absolutely help us uh, draw attention to people searching for F1. And with Drive to Survive coming out again, Matt, I think this is this is the time we need to be high in the iTunes charts. Have we got a release date for, for Drive to Survive? Um, February 4th, maybe? Somewhere around there? That early? No. Oh, okay. I think it's a bit later. We'll catch up with that in just a moment. In fact, let's bring Kyle in. Kyle, you know when it is. When is it? Hey, I thought it was around right at the end of February, maybe the 24th. 24th. That's what I thought it was as well. Maybe. And Matt doing being inaccurate has forced me to introduce you early, Kyle. But hello, Kyle Power, our resident engineer, probably the smartest man who comes to the shed. Oh, no. Actually, <laughs> that's not true this week. But But normally, normally, you're the smartest man that comes to the shed. <laughs> yes, it's the 28th that someone has just pointed out in the chat room. It's the 28th of Feb. Fantastic. Well, that's Kyle joining us as well. Uh, you can catch up with loads of stuff we're doing. We did a Patreon podcast last week for our patrons, patreon.com forward slash Apex. We're also going to be doing some Apex TV. So we're going to be reviewing Picard with Simon Dan tomorrow. Those of you who listen to, who watch Simon Dan on YouTube, he's joining us in the shed for Apex TV. And we'll be trying to catch up on our Formula E podcast. Okay, sorry, that's not going well. We will try our best to catch up with that. Uh, and also we're prepping for W Series. So loads to come in the off season, but we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. So Kyle and Matt ruined my intro. We've all already introduced Kyle. The reason Kyle's not the, the cleverest man on the podcast today is because we are joined by Peter Wright, the Managing Director of Digital Law UK, a solicitor, chair of the Law Society's Policy and Regulatory Affairs Committee, and the reason why you have to click an extra button every time you do a thing because of GDPR. Boo. It's Peter Wright. Peter, thanks for joining us. Hello, everyone. Uh, yeah, great to be here. And GDPR isn't totally my fault. Isn't it, I, Peter? I hasten to add, yes. <laughs> well, not totally isn't isn't uh, sort of letting you off the hook completely. But thanks for slumming it in the shed and chatting some F1 to us today. I mean, you're going to be focusing a bit later on driver contracts as well, which is something that is just baffling and speculative normally from our point of view. Yes, just thought we'd look at a little bit more detail about what actually goes into the negotiations, because I I have a horrible feeling that most of this year is going to be dominated by the only off-track news will be who has signed what for where and who. I like that, though. That's kind of like, that's our gossip season, isn't it? That is like our soap opera. That's our Dallas. It is. And to a certain extent, I was quite disappointed, actually, that um, uh, Max Verstappen and uh, Charles Leclerc have actually 
they actually ended the suspense. I thought that would go on into, for into, well into 2020 before that got settled. But uh, I think there's still plenty of big players out there where it's going to be interesting to see exactly what happens. Brilliant. We'll talk some driver contract stuff after the big dirty news. Big dirty news. Okay, Matt, I, I muted what you have cruelly been calling a tinfoil hat uh, conspiracy theory uh, about Lance Stroll and how he's going to be world champion. So I'm going to go through that now here on the main broadcast. You still think that I'm, I'm, I'm smoking funny stuff? Well, somebody's got to tell you. Okay, so there's been a string of, of news stories and rumors that have led me to reinforce what I said about 18 months ago, actually. So I want to be, I want to be hailed as an oracle here who was the first to say that Lance Stroll would be Formula One world champion. Because the first thing that drew my attention to it really is that Lawrence Stroll is a billion, billion, billionaire. He's many times over a billionaire and he's good at drawing funds in. So he's the kind of person who can gather investment and draw people in. So that means that he has got the kind of money that no Formula One driver has sort of had in his court before. So the the when when Force India got sold and went into administration when it when Force India mysteriously went into administration just as Lance Stroll needed a seat. See what I've done there? I'll just am I on shaky am I on shaky legal ground yet, Peter? You'll have to tell me if I am. Um well, let's put it this way. Those, those things were linked, but not quite in that way. But we'll Oh, okay. Well, will they be linked <laughs> further? So recently, a lot of news stories have come in uh, that are that are speculative. So that are, are, are from news sources that I wouldn't normally trust, but they get kind of shared out everywhere. One is that Mercedes are thinking seriously about pulling out as a team and that they are looking to just be an engine manufacturer from 2021. Then there is uh, the rumours of a link-up between uh, Toto Wolff and Lawrence Stroll as well. So Toto Wolff running a team run by a Lawrence Stroll-led finance thing, and also the links between Lawrence Stroll and Aston Martin as well. Now, the the one bit of news from this that I don't doubt, which I'll probably start with uh, by going to you, Peter, is that I have heard from a source that I trust, and I don't know how common knowledge this is, that Aston Martin are in serious, serious financial difficulties, and they are only being kept up by Lawrence Stroll. Well, they're, they're certainly in very serious financial difficulties, uh, and that's the uh, the uh, the bit that is entirely public news. So um, uh, it, it's the case that, once again, um, Aston Martin, again, in its history, is struggling Um Obviously, most people will know that Aston Martin famously supply the cars that are used in the James Bond films. And that's a helpful memoir because, of course, James Bond 007, Aston Martin Lagonda has gone bust seven times in the past in its 107-year history, and it could be heading that way again. Um, it's launching a brand new car this year, the DBX, but it's doing that from a position of more than likely being in about £800 million worth of debt uh, by the end of this year. Um, because they're putting all the money into the comms and designing a new car and putting that forward just at the time that their sales have taken a fairly heavy dive. So their share price isn't doing very well at all. Uh, and indeed, there is a lot of talk of them needing a new financial package, new investment. And one of those uh, potential characters is Lawrence Stroll. Um, another investor we should probably talk about briefly is the um, uh, the organization um, 
I think it's called Carly that makes the um, London cabs, the electric cabs. They're also, which is actually now um, owned in China um, by a very large automotive conglomerate. There, apparently, they are also um, scoping out and doing some due diligence on Aston Martin before either buying or making an investment. So it sounds like uh, trumpets that basically Peter is confirming that a stroll-based consortium is definitely going to buy and own Aston Martin. That's my takeaway from that. Nope, sorry, <laughs> sorry, Peter, it's too late. It's too late. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to ask, I thought I'd seen online somewhere that perhaps Toto Wolf was making a separate bid, but is he part of that Stroll Consortium? Now, that, have you heard anything on that, Peter? Because that's we heard that. Okay, that's fine. So that is another news story that came out, which was that this if, this, if Mercedes did back out in 2021 and another organization came and took it over, it would be led by Toto Wolf from a, a team point of view, which makes complete sense. Imagine if Mercedes are pulling out, Toto Wolf no longer has a job. You're Lawrence Stroll, who's just bought Aston Martin and Brackley. Toto Wolf is the most amazing, perfect person to put in. You put all those things together, Matt, and Lance Stroll is basically the number one driver with Checo, who is, sorry, Mr. Perez, who is mysteriously getting, oh, your engine conked out, Checo. Sorry about that. We're doing everything we can. And that's it. Lance Stroll is world champion. But Mercedes pulling out in 2021, that's not hyper unrealistic if you think that that perhaps they are going, well, 2021, we're making money from uh, Williams, we're making money from McLaren, and we're making money from Stroll, Martin, Point India. No, it's not entirely unrealistic, um, especially if you take into account that their new CEO, uh, Kalinius, I believe, is not rumored to be as much a fan of the big spending on Formula One and is not necessarily as convinced the new financial regulations, which I think were mostly put into place so that you could go back to the corporate board and say, no, look, really, we will be responsible and not spend more than, you know, 750 billion euros this year, we promise. Um, if he's dubious about this project, if he's dubious about the um, internal combustion engine portion of his business, then then he may not see that the marketing returns on it will continue to be worth it. And if they're not going to be worth it, the person you're going to ask about first is Lewis Hamilton, who right now is signed through 2020 and has yet to sign an extension going forward into the new uh, set of regulations. Yeah, that's interesting. And I didn't really realize that Mercedes also are not committed beyond 2020. So whilst we are obviously being sensationalist here, none of those things are impossible. Uh, well, <laughs> Peter, what was that? Did you just mouth really? <laughs> so what we're doing is we are making the point that, that all these various factors exist and then coming to insane conclusions after that. So yes, obviously people will ask what is happening with Lewis Hamilton. But frankly, once the money gets involved, Lewis Hamilton isn't the main factor. Could he get signed for another year to 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 bring Lance Stroll up to some kind of standard before they bring in a compliant number two? All of these things uh, could happen. Good. Matt, is that all on Aston Martin? Should we, should we move on to some driver contracts? Um, yeah, we could move on. I, I was going to briefly mention that that Red Bull did indeed sign a uh, extension with Mobile Exxon. So they do have a strong partner going forward into the new regulation side. But that's just a tidbit, really. Okay. And we understand, yeah, that the, the Aston Martin definitely won't be on the Red Bull car, won't be a Red Bull sponsor or whatever form uh, they're currently in now beyond 2020. 
And apparently the only reason they're on the car for this season is because it was paid up in advance at the start of the, the current agreement. All right, let's move on to some driver contract news. Oh, actually, I've oversold that, haven't I, Peter? It's not driver contract news as such, but just give us a bit of an insight into this, the murky world of driver contracts. As you alluded to earlier, some of the fun of Silly Season has been wrecked by Max Verstappen and Charles Leclerc. But but what does it mean? Because when you look at Leclerc, he's tied in for five years. Who has the power in that situation? Is it Charles Leclerc going, brilliant, I'm, I'm, I'm secure, I've definitely got to drive for five years? Or is it more Ferrari saying, well, no, kid, that's not how it works. It means we've got an option for you for five years. And if we bin you, yes, we owe you money. How, how does that all work? Well, that's that's a very good question. I mean, um, both both with uh, Charles and uh, and Max, they've both signed into these long term deals that um, commit them or certainly try and tie them down and take them off the market. Um, but in terms of sort of in extremis, what if you know midway through that contract there was a big change and either they wanted to drop Charles or even say apocalyptically um, Ferrari decided to pull out. I know that sounds apocalyptic, but we're engaging in wild speculation, so why not? Well, we haven't been um, so far. If you want to drag us down to that level, I guess that's on you. <laughs> well, they've threatened it themselves about every three years for the past 20 years, that's, so that's... It's, it's not exactly new, is it? Um, but the, the reason I say that is because these contracts will have been very carefully drafted with sort of force majeure clauses in, in terms of what if, you know, what if the worst happens, what would we do? Uh, so there would be clauses in there that would allow more than likely for any dispute, for example, to be settled. There is a contract recognition board settlement mechanism that allows for any um, sort of discrepancies on contracts to go and to go to arbitration, i.e., before a panel. Uh, but more often than not, you wouldn't even want that to go to an external panel. So if it was something between the team and the driver, and they could just settle it behind closed doors, there would be mechanisms within the contract that would allow for that. That would more than likely mean that. Charles would walk away with the entirety of that contract paid up and might mean that he had to take a year or two potentially away from the sport. And let's face it, we've seen that as well. Remember Alain Prost in uh, 1992 taking a year out? We've seen other drivers have to do that occasionally as well. Uh, famously, Kimi Raikkonen, perhaps? Indeed. Or was it just a perfect desire that he wanted to just go and do valley cars for a few years in the middle of his absolutely prime years in Formula One? But, uh, exactly. That, that's an exact similar case. Uh, that's sarcasm for the audio listeners only. <laughs> Carl, you had a question. Yeah, it was going to be a question for um, Peter. Um, do do F1 contracts have much relevance? Because we're so used to them, all of them pretty much being being broken. And Martin Brundle always says that they're not worth the paper that they're written on. So are they more like letters of intent to try and... Um, to try and just keep the driver there? Like, are they watertight? Because in commercial world contracts, I'd imagine they're much more sort of watertight. But Formula One, they seem to be ripped up all the time. Well, in, I think it's a matter of, between the, the the reality of what we see as as fans looking at what happens um, on the track and in the paddock compared to then the reality of the discussions that will have taken place in an office and the understanding between the parties. So we might think, ah, if a, if a driver, say, does end up flouncing out of the sport for a year, that looks to us like, oh, the contract is, is is being ignored, when in reality it's the case that they're probably walking away with about $30 million in the back pocket um, and various other rights. Um, and also the team will have taken certain things back, i.e. the right to put someone else into the car. Um, but increasingly as well, I mean, these things – 
we tend to hear the headlines, don't we? Oh, someone signs a five-year contract for a squillion dollars. Doesn't that sound incredible? Um, when really that is just the headline. We're talking about actually very complex commercial agreements that cover everything from uh, what the driver can and can't do, what they can do on social media, um, what interests they're allowed away from the sport, um, even down to um, things like commercial rights in terms of their own IP sponsorship. Can they go and flog, you know, a hat or a T-shirt with their name on, or just have to have the team on? And it, you can imagine that once you get into the weeds of sorting those out, that's why these things take so very long to actually get negotiated and agreed. And uh, part of that could pertain to the Lewis Hamilton talk at the moment, and uh, his contract may be stalling out because I I read earlier on today that. Maybe a part of it is some of Mercedes' demands as to what he may do post his racing career afterwards. So apparently they might be trying to place a restriction on him that he can't drive for another team. He has to stay on as like an ambassador. And I think that's where some of the talks are starting to break down. It's just what I heard. What? That's insane, Peter. And also, uh, I I know you're you're writing an article where you talk about uh, Lewis Hamilton negotiating his own contracts, like genuinely him as a person negotiating his own, own contracts. My understanding is that certainly his last contract, that was the case. He literally sits down with Toto and the main, the main agreements are made between them. Um, I'm sure then that uh, Mercedes lawyers will get involved with a template and, and put, set the actual thing out. But, um, I mean, Lewis did used to be, of course, represented, uh, by his father, Anthony, right? When he, when he entered Formula One. Um, and I think he, and I'm sure the uh, the live stream will correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was Didier Cotton that managed him for a brief period when he was still at McLaren. Um, but that uh, subsequently, certainly the, his current Mercedes deal, he negotiated himself. But very often teams actually really appreciate that if it's the driver that does it rather than them turning up at the circuit with a team of lawyers or a, or a really pushy manager wanting to get a deal done. So I think he's found it fits in certainly with the dynamics that, Mercedes and certainly fits in with the close relationship he's had with Toto Wolff um, in the last few years, certainly since uh, since Nico left the team. It might be worth remembering as well, one of the main reasons he was really looking to leave McLaren, aside from the uh, ruined pit stops and technical uh, disasters. Engines go boom. Uh, was he was unhappy with a lot of the non-racing stuff that was in his contract. I mean, is Mercedes, if this is really part of the negotiation, is Mercedes maybe playing with a, a little bit of fire uh, with regards to what they're asking for here? Kyle, just just add to that. Yeah, you could see the difference in Lewis. Apparently, he wasn't allowed to have tattoos or wear what he liked <laughs> what? and stuff. Like that. And it was very McLaren. As you can imagine under the Ron Dennis guys was very, um, I was uh, liking it to the John Major out of Spitting Image, eating peas. It was very grey, very, um, very narrow, very refined into what you can do in the micromanagement of your everyday life. And as soon as Lewis got to Mercedes, he filled up like a scribble board. He just all of a sudden overnight became covered in tattoos. That is exactly right. They used to literally the McLaren contracts used to, I think, insist on you have to wear the shirt and a certain trousers, and the shirt has to be tucked in, and it has to be the right size, and you have to wear the cap with it. Um, whereas you could tell how sort of relieved Lewis felt going to Mercedes at first. Look at those early PR shots of him and Nico, where they're both together, smiling, and there's rapport and everything, and he's there wearing a pair of jeans with just the shirt untucked. And you can tell he feels, you know, really liberated by this compared to, I think, quite um, the atmosphere at McLaren, which while I think he probably felt as a young driver, that was actually quite helpful, giving that structure when he first came into the sport. He was chafing against that, I think, after 
only a year or two. And certainly, famously, McLaren too, I think, because they, when you look at um, their background, they have a, such a, a wide range of sponsors. That means the drivers end up being tied into, ah, you'll have to do this PR day for this sponsor, and you'll have to do a photo shoot with this sponsor, and then um, another magazine interview that's going to go into, you know, be syndicated around the world with this journalist who will want half a day with you on a boat in Monaco. <laughs> All this yeah. stuff starts to add up. And we tend to think, well, surely sitting on a boat in Monaco, oh, my heart bleeds. But if actually you're wanting to go off and do something in your own personal life, and instead it's like, no, actually, you've got to do this. and You've got to fly out there. You've got to do it. You've got to fly back. Um, suddenly that starts to become quite an encroachment on your personal time. And we've seen yeah. how in the in recent years, Lewis has actually taken that management of his personal time to really harness and focus his own performance. Uh, you know, he sometimes he's even not gone along to some of the live, I think it was London live before the British Grand Prix one year, he didn't go to because he knew he wanted to be at his best performance. Um, and if you know that you're going to be compromised in your performance by spending, you know, two days doing PR before a race and you can hopefully get rid of that, then that's what you're going to want to do. But of course, different teams, particularly mid-grid where you've got those sponsors that you need to keep happy um, and you've got those other concerns, then really, you know, drivers will be trying to minimize that stuff, but how much leverage do you really have? It's only when you get to the very top level, like Lewis and like famously Kimmy, who has zero um, or <laughs> as little press and PR commitment as you can possibly have. Um, that is very much written into his contract. He doesn't want to have to do that stuff if he can possibly help it. But he does like doing snowmobile racing, which you can imagine most teams will go, if you think you're going to go and do that in the off-season and risk getting a broken leg, you've got another thing coming. But he was able to get himself... Well, he was certainly seemingly he was able to do that in the contracts. Uh, to be fair, I think Kimmy has absolutely demonstrated that there's a reason you shouldn't ask him to do anything extra with regards to PR or advertising or or meeting people. I mean, you know, it's it's kind of like that. Okay, you want me to do the dishes? Fine, here you go. And then you know, after you do them poorly often enough, for some reason, you don't get asked to do them anymore. Uh, yeah, and certainly uh, what you were saying there, Peter, about. Uh, uh, other duties interfering with your race weekend and stopping you having a life. Uh, uh, Daniel Ricardo, who uh, said on Beyond the Grid, mm. which is a news item later, we are going to talk about Beyond the Grid, uh, saying that you know he's really got cut down because when he goes to Australia, it just wrecks his weekend. I, I, it's very easy to look at these drivers and say, "Hey, you're a billionaire, just deal with it." No, they're human beings. They've also they've got to have a life as well. Uh, so uh, you're talking about uh, Lewis Hamilton, you know, doing his own contract negotiations. Certainly for the last one, uh, but you've you've mentioned to me before about Damon Hill and it not going so well when they've brought like a team of lawyers around them and tried to be like Hill PLC. Yes, I mean that was uh, back in 1996 when um, Damon was trying to uh, get his contract extension agreed, and um, things had gone rather silent on the Williams side of that. He uh, turned up, I think, at the uh, German Grand Prix at Hockenheim that year. He'd actually brought his solicitor with him, wanting him to be able to sit down with the appropriate people at Williams and, and get this contract settled. And um, that did not go down particularly well, as far as I know, with the Williams management, who, of course, were more interested in turning up at a race weekend and getting uh, getting a result. Um, of course, in the background, we now know that there were um, discussions taking place, and I, I think Heinz Harold Frenzen had probably already been signed by that point. But they didn't particularly want to, um, you know, end up, um, you know, didn't want to end up sort of cutting, cutting, uh, cutting the hills and knees from under him um, as early, quite that early. But uh, it just shows the niceties you have to observe when you're trying to uh, get these things negotiated. So with the hill thing, um, 
it's in Adrian Newey's book, he was furious with um, Patrick Head about it because they essentially signed Frentzen almost back in 95 to punish Hill as how badly he drove in 95, but there might have still been a chance. So you're saying him turning up with solicitors was the final nail in his coffin and just tipped them over the edge to, to completely cut him out? I think possibly yes, yeah. Um, when, of course, from, from Hill's side, he was thinking, well, hang on, I'm you know, in, in the process of winning your world championship here, things are going really well. Um, why, why aren't you wanting to get this done? I mean, it, famously um, at their height when they were winning those titles, Williams had a bit of a tin ear when it came to looking after their uh, their drivers. Um, and unfortunately, that sort of um, typified, that whole episode sort of typified it. Um, famously, they, um, you know, they opened the checkbook when it came to, to Ayrton Senna, but uh, famously, they never wanted to pay Mansell or Prost or Hill, a uh, similar sort of amount. So um, they always, I think, felt very much they're an engineering company that required a semi-good driver to allow them to get the maximum performance out of their equipment, um, whereas the driver sometimes found themselves being valued a little bit more highly in uh, in other teams is is famously the story. But it's interesting you refer there to Adrian Newey and the fact that I think he had a very close relationship um, with Damon Hill and was actually engineering his car for some of those races. And I think um, left Williams himself uh, before the 97 season started because I think he was quite frustrated with how um, Hill had been treated and just couldn't understand why they were making those decisions when, as far as he was concerned, a top car and a top driver, why not carry on for another year or two? Yeah, and I think he was um, a bit frustrated. Well, this is just what I got from his book um, with Patrick Head just being a bit crass and the atmosphere inside the team. If you read Mark Webber's book, he refers to it as well. And he says mm-hmm. in his book that Nico Rosberg also refers to it as well, that Williams is not a very nice place to place to work or a nice team to, to drive with, really. And oh. it sounded like Patrick Head made quite a lot of his decisions troughing his way through a bottle of red wine, as okay. he explained to Adrian Newey. So he oh, was okay. going to get into the... Um, Okay, Kyle, Kyle, I'm so sorry, Kyle, I've got to stop you there because just from a legal point of view, we have to protect ourselves and say that Mist Apex in no way endorses the reading of books. Like Netflix is really good. There's loads of really, really good TV. Uh, I'd love to say hello uh, to our chat room, to our live chat room here. Hi, guys. Thanks for joining us. Um, You can join us on the live chat just by going to uh, YouTube and searching for Missed Apex Podcast. And I've just put on there, I've asked if there's any contract questions to finish on. And uh, we have a few. We have a few here from, uh, let's see, uh, James Douglas. Where do the panel think Vettel will be in 2021? That's a, a good good question, but I want to take it from a slightly different angle. And uh, F1 Idiot says, what do you make of the end of Schumacher's contract at Ferrari? Uh, right. So currently at Ferrari, we have got a four-time world champion with a young driver who's just had a five-year deal signed. I'm, I'm curious, like when it comes to number one, number two drivers, we talk about it all the time. Do you think this is something that actually gets written into F1 contracts? So has Vettel got in his contract, you will be the number one driver at Scuderia Ferrari, and then Leclerc has got a new contract. What do they do there? Do they say, you'll be the number one eventually, but you have to be Vettel on merit and then we won't sign this contract? How does that work? Well, I think as far as Ferrari are concerned, uh, if we sort of look at the, um, have any of us seen a Ferrari contract? No, but I think from past history, events would suggest that their contracts do have written into them, X is number one, Y is number two. And I think the phrase... Um, 
Fernando is faster than you. Can you confirm you understand? Confirms the exact wording that was probably in that contract, and that's why that vocabulary was used. Um, and why when that came out, it was clearly associated to the fact that if that wording was used and the driver did not obey the instruction, there was probably a financial penalty or even a performance penalty that would have been attached if uh, Felipe Massa had not allowed uh, Fernando through. That's back in 2010. But I think that gives us a fairly clear idea that there's always that obsession with Ferrari. They've always clearly had the number one and number two, and I think it has to be written in very, quite clearly into the contracts there. In terms of what's now gone into Charles' contract, that is a very well, we aren't going to know definitively until we see how this season unfolds, but I think that's also indelibly linked to um, uh, Vettel's performance. And you ask the question, what's he going to be doing? Um, my personal view is that if he makes it through this season, then that's going to be it. I think he'll be uh, uh, leaving to spend more time with his uh, family and children. And is it uh, Mannheim in, in Germany where his, his family is? So I, I think wow. that's, that will be... Uh, if, that is pure speculation, I hasten to add. But, if um, this was championship manager on PC, then he would be retiring to run a pub in his hometown. I believe that's the the, the, the way these things go. Uh, Matt? So uh, a lot of times we hear talk about performance um, contracts, performance aspects of the contract, and on both sides, from the driver and from the team. After watching what that, how Vettel tap danced through his last season at Red Bull in order to get to Ferrari... Do you think teams are perhaps being more judicious in what they're willing to promise drivers, especially drivers of the caliber of, let's say, Vettel or Hamilton? That's a very good question. Um, I'd, I'd say that Vettel's final season at Red Bull is a good example of that, and that given that very much they seem to have contracts that have a performance-based element to them, um, I think that is certainly linked to possible new options or new contracts following, but I think with Red Bull as well, it's very heavily weighted to the driver's salary. I think more so than some of the other teams, it seems to be the case that I think for every point scored, for every win, for every podium, there's quite a large, um, I think they've probably got quite a, a minimal basic compared to a lot of the other drivers on the grid, but then a, a large performance-related element to that. Uh, and certainly that's been the model at Red Bull and some of the other teams. Um, I, I think sometimes as well, it depends if a team wants to have or feels it has a particular advantage in a negotiation, it'll try and um, put the driver into that position where their performance is more um, salary-based, um, uh, performance-based. Whereas, of course, if you are a Lewis or a, or, or a Sebastian Vettel, then you get to turn around and say, well, actually, no, I think I'm entitled to so many squillion a year and, and that's it, take it or leave it. Okay, well, let's finish up by asking uh, the other question. Do you know much about the end of the Schumacher contract? Because the the live stream is saying, well, even in the end, even Schumacher got shafted, but he was very public on the on the press conferences. He tried to make it out like, no, 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 I am handing the mantle over to Massa. I'm doing this so my great friend Felipe can take the Ferrari torch. Uh, any views on that, Peter? Um, very good question um and it's it's difficult to to know definitively given i've always felt that given his performance schumacher's performance in that final ferrari year was so immense it was always very difficult to think well what you know why walk away at that particular point and there's an awful lot to be said you know leave the stage while um while the audience want more and that's what i sort of reconciled myself to for a few years but the fact he came back with mercedes showed that he always had that hunger and wanted to race um, so it kind of showed that I think at that point, yeah, that um, 
certainly the team felt you look you know we're, we're in control of this and we're going to put you next to a driver that you don't like and if he you know if Schumacher decided I don't, don't want to do that that's it I'm going to leave because I think he very much felt that it was going to be the position whereby uh, Kimi was going to uh, come in and um, did he want to have uh, Kimi as a teammate absolutely not um because he'd ruled the roost there. Don't forget, this is the Ferrari where they brought in Eddie Irvine as his teammate um, and basically uh, allowed him to have you know have his pick of teammates um, who were then in that clear number two role. Certainly when it came to any future Ferrari contract, that clear gold-plated number one status was uh, was no longer available. Um, so yes, it, it just shows the, the way that can, uh, that can evolve. Thank you very I much. Heard. Oh, go on, Carl. Beg your pardon. Oh, sorry. I'd say that I heard there were murmurings that he'd actually fallen out of favour with Mr. De Montezemolo. So De Montezemolo wanted him out, apparently. And Schumacher very much wanted to stay, but that's just wild speculation. Hey, do you know what? We do that here. Thank you very much, Peter Wright, for adding a bit of legitimacy to our chat. Incredibly interesting. I think we'll definitely have to get you back again. I had a long list of questions about driver contracts so i hope we haven't hope we haven't put you off too much peter and you can come back and speak to us in the shed throughout the season i'd be more than happy to do that if uh if calendars and schedules allow that allow that that'd be really good i think this Ooh. will be a fascinating season it'll unhope as it unfolds as well Ooh, see i don't know which way to take that now see i i did the bold move of inviting you on air so that it would be awkward you did a very positive yes but then instantly added caveats and they never saw Peter Wright again because <laughs> he realized his credibility was being damaged. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Uh, somebody's credibility that can only really go up though is we have to catch up with uh, my good friend now uh, kyle power kyle how, how do you find yourself on this good day are you are you feeling good healthy um no <laughs> i've been uh, not feeling well all day i've been talking on the big white telephone all self-inflicted 
But yes, no, not feeling too fresh, I have to admit. Uh, Kyle Power is, aside from being a consummate professional and a, an engineer of some repute, you are a party animal. You, ha- you are the Peter Pan of Wild Nights. Uh, I, I have had radio shows ruined by you that you weren't even on because my guest was was like in a, in a really bad state. I'm going, what what were you up to last night? Well, uh, I started off with Kyle. Yeah, yeah, okay, fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. I've got you, but Kyle, you have you've come to Miss Apex. You've been a great panelist. You've led segments. You've been my co-host when Matt has let me down because <laughs> oh man, I need to make money blowing air through a brass tube. That's a real How job, selfish. even though it's only got three holes. It's a real. And he had the goal to call guitarists amateur musicians. Unbelievable, right? So when Matt has let me down. You've come. Oh, you obviously don't listen to the Patreon podcast then, Kyle. No, he did a massive attack on guitarists, called it the amateur oh. instrument. Is that right, Matt? Oh. That's not an unfair. I haven't slandered you there. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's an instrument that amateurs can learn to play rapidly well enough to enjoy. Oh, that's, that. that is a lot, that is a lot nicer than what he said on the Patreon mm-hmm. podcast guitar. I can play semi competently, so I'll be offended. Yeah. I'll but you, it. you have come and you've rescued <laughs> me on those occasions. You've come and been a subject matter expert for me on Formula One and uh, amateur motorsport. And you filled in for me as well for the part of the British rental car championships that I couldn't cover as their pit lane reporter. How did, how did you find that? You were on camera. It was the camera on your face and you interviewing people. That was great fun. I had a really good time. It was a bit scary at first, a bit unusual having people talking in your ear as you're trying to ask questions. Uh, I have to say you make it look incredibly easy, but once I settled in, I really, really enjoyed it. Apart from being completely um, completely dropped and made to look like a fool by the five times ladies world champion, Selena Belanega. Oh my God, it was incredible. So Kyle was like, <laughs> you got through the interview quite well. And then you were like, oh, let me give you a medal. You then didn't have it on you. You went to go and get it. You put your head down. She smiles at the camera, camera completely leaves. And then you just pop your head up with this medal facing a camera with no one to interview. But, but apart from that, Carl, I have to say it was very good. So if you want to go and catch up with how me, Kyle, Brad and the team did at the British Rental Cart Championship, go and search for BRKC on YouTube and you can catch up with what we did there. So I'm not just talking to Kyle for no reason. I'm not just going to Kyle because I love him and his face and his wonderful beard and moustache. No, Kyle, you are going to talk to us about engines. I was going to claim credit for this, but Matt has titled this Two Stroke or Not Two Stroke, A Guide to Rediscovering Intimacy with Your Long-Term Partner. No, that's not what it is. We're talking about two-stroke tech. Tell us engine stuff. Talk engines to me, Kyle. Yes, well, this is all rather exciting, really. So when I first read it, I was quite surprised. But then actually, the more you read, the more it makes sense. So the two stroke that we probably all know and familiar with, uh, the annoying mopeds sound like an angry wasp stuck in a tin can driving past you. Lots of blue smoke. Um, I race two strokes. I love two stroke pers- personally. Wait, wait, carts, but, um, carts. Yeah, carts. Mm. Yes, carts, but not cars. So Pat Simmons has been a big advocate of this and is pushing really hard for 2025 engine rigs. Use the current units until 2025, but then go to a two-stroke engine. Now, the old school two-strokes, the oil burners, um, were brilliant. We love them for their vicious power delivery, but they're not very efficient and they're quite pollutive. So, um, but the modern technology, if you apply modern electronics, modern fuel injection techniques which they couldn't make work before they become more efficient 
and greener for than the current than the current engines are and the current four strokes and there's all sorts of lovely things they can apply like e-fuels and maybe using hydrogen as a fuel i'm sure matt's going to want to get into this we've been geeking out big time on this already um it's really good. We could do a whole show about this subject. Well, I'll hang quickly on a wrap it up. I, I'll just say, because Matt, Matt's completely distracted by the chat room, I'm sure, because uh, Michael Dustelhoff is suggesting that your nickname is now Kyle Two Stroke Powers. And uh, Johnny B. Rotten is saying, Two Stroke, is that the title of one of Mrs. Trumpet's naughty books? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, okay, let's just be really clear what we're talking Covered about Because as soon as you say... Um, Two stroke. Uh, my mind is is straight to like uh, you know a, 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 a Sprilia sports bikes and motorbikes. Are we are we talking about two stroke engines in a Formula One car eventually? Yes. Okay, that to me yeah. that seems it just seems counterintuitive. It just seems balmy. It seems like we're going to have to have like thirty five thousand revs per minute to to get and and, and the noise is going to be a dog whistle. Well, the noise could be could be amazing. So two strokes. From an engineering point of view, it makes perfect sense. Uh, they're looking at an opposing piston type, so there's no need for a cylinder head. So instead of having a piston going up and down and ahead, they're they're facing each other and going in and out with all the fancy um, uh, ignition techniques that they can do. Uh, they can make them incredibly efficient. But you get basically, I'm not going to explain how two string two stroke engine works. Uh, you can go onto YouTube. There's loads uh, of great uh, literature uh, well, and stuff about it, it. Explain it like a tiny bit. Just explain it enough so that like I know what we're talking about. Okay, so very simply, you get more bang for your buck. So in a four-stroke engine, you make power on one of those strokes. In a two-stroke engine, you make power on every other stroke. So it's not quite as linear as this, but you get twice as much power for your for your capacity. So And they can rev really high. They produce amazing torque at high revs. So this could be really, really exciting, especially with you can force induct them now. So turbos, superchargers exciting ignition techniques and it ties in perfectly with the FIA's pledge to be carbon neutral by 2025 because it means they provide a compression inside the cylinder which you can burn somebody's newfangled e-fuels which is quite difficult to do in a current four-stroke engine. Okay so just forgive my ignorance slightly does this mean that will a two-stroke behave a little bit more like an electric engine power delivery where it's it's kind of a bit more instant? No? No, uh, no, it would be, well, the, the two stroke that I know, it's usually quite laggy. They have something called a power band where it makes all of its power oh, so in a the very small opposite. window. Okay. Well done, Spanners. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Good. Okay. Sorry. I, I put you down a diversion there uh, for a tech route, but, um, so, so it's going to be carbon neutral or, or better in a carbon way. So is this yet another political decision that is going to bring uh, people out of the woodwork going, right, this is terrible. Boo. Well, no, because it could actually, especially a lot of people have had a gripe with the noise, have had a massive gripe with the noise, and this could provide a very, very interesting noise. Um, two strokes sound great. They're aggressive. They're buzzy. They're going to rev high. So higher revs means more noise. That can only be a good thing, right? Well, not if you're Miami, where noise is one of the potential complaints that people against the race are going, and not if you're gotten used to bringing your kids to the races and not having to put ear defenders on them, then maybe the noise coming back isn't what you're looking for as much. But if you are running internal combustion engines and the automotive industry is making huge bets on electric vehicles for purposes of fleet mileage, average fleet mileage, then if I've got an internal combustion engine, I'm going to need one that's going to return a similar level of efficiency that current electric 
hybrids do now. And one of the things about the two stroke that is very interesting is they have, mo- is, um, so the opposed, uh, cylinder two stroke engine you're talking about, that's Ashite. And I, I found them online. Uh, one of the things they talk about is the thermal efficiency, again, being able to get it close to 50%. Now, uh, Simmons in his interview, said that they're aiming at 60% efficiency. And if you take m- modern ignition techniques, like we found we're talking about plasma ignition and stuff like that, combine it with the two-cylinder, then you begin to say that, well, they might actually be able to get there. The other thing that's fun about it, and you did mention, is the insane amount of torque these engines deliver. This is going to, you re- remember the old turbos where the turbo would just come on and suddenly the whole car would just do like that? We could see power units like that again. Wow. But it's a. We've gone a bit tech time there, haven't we? You've said an awful lot of numbers, Kyle. Um, there were 17 questions. Can I limit you to just, just answering three of the questions Matt gave you there? Yep. So, um, going with the power delivery, these, these ones, we, we could be into quite a lot of excitement for this. Typically, two stroke makes all of its power in a very narrow range called a power band at the top. And it's almost like an on off switch. All or nothing. And that makes it incredibly exciting to drive. That will be mitigated somewhat because there's going to be a hybrid element in, in it. It will be it will be smoothed out somewhat. But but the power delivery will be great. The noise should be great. And from a pure engineering perspective, it's much, much, much more simple than the current engines. There's less moving parts. The engines are going to be smaller. And also, if you're having an opposed system, a piston even, it's going to be so much lower. You can get the center of gravity much, much lower. So I think engineers engine manufacturers are starting to rub their hands together and salivate over the prospect of designing a modern two-stroke. Matt, I'm just going to jump to the chat room very quickly. Uh, Mahinda says, is that a non-Brexit comment on Kyle's wall? Don't know, mate. Can't can't see a thing. Uh, Bramwell Music says, is Trumpets looking slimmer or is Spanners fatter? Yes. Uh, uh, Dadster says, we need noise, so don't sleep when Trumpets goes off on one. Uh, right. So I think lots of people t- talking about the noise here. I I just want to just slightly tangent and say like Peter I don't know if you're like me but like the noise it doesn't matter to me unless I'm literally right there there is a there is a stadium effect but really isn't it just down to how much you balance the noise against Crofty and Brundle like you can just make it louder or softer it doesn't it doesn't matter on telly I, I think that's a really good point. Um, certainly, uh, I actually enjoy being able to go to Formula One races now and not have to either take ear defenders or earplugs with me. Um, but I know that some people love the noise. Certainly, the, I remember the first time I went to a race, the fact that you could hear them on practice from probably about well over a mile, a couple of miles away as you walk towards the circuit. And that sense of anticipation of, wow, what is it making that noise? Um, was was incredibly special. And I, I suppose that fans aren't, aren't being able to enjoy that now. But I'm always more interested, less in the noise, more in the actual, the racing and the action on the track. Um, and if that means that particularly young fans aren't being deafened in the process, that's kind of a good thing. See, but Con- yeah. Maybe controversial. No, well, look, I mean, we look at Kyle. Kyle's the most engineery of us here. I mean, noise is waste energy, isn't it? It's not, it's not something mm-hmm. really to aspire to. If you've got loads of noise in a system, generally something's going wrong. Yeah. And it goes back to the thermal efficiency thing. So previous engines were about 27 to 30% thermally efficient. About probably about 10 years ago, they thought 50% thermal efficiency was impossible. Now they're talking 60%. It's amazing. And this is what we need to do. And they did say that full electric is not the way to go. Formula E has their own license to be the only full electric event. So Formula One cannot do that. So, um, 
So yeah, I I think this is a good move, and I'd love to see it happen. I would be curious to see what they could do uh, with the MGUH. Uh, a lot of the complaint about the noise came with how they engineered the MGUH, and I suspect any excess noise complaints could be easily sorted out with well, easily uh, when you're a genius F1 and you have a million engineers and unlimited budget to throw at problems. Uh, but one thing you haven't talked about, and I just in looking at the general things, if we're going to make the same amount of power with a two-cylinder engine, it doesn't have to be as big or have as many cylinders, does it? No, no, much smaller. So a good a good thing to um, think about is basically so a 125cc two-stroke motorbike will be about as fast as a 250cc four-stroke motorbike. So the engine capacities could be almost under one litre for Formula One. But they'll be making that power at a high rev range, so they'll still be screaming and sounding great. And that would mean less weight in mm-hmm. the car? Yep, less weight and less actual size. So aerodynamicists are going to like this. So the engine will be physically smaller than the current ones. There's not so much gump and auxiliary stuff all around it. It's going to be much more compact. So imagine the back end of the cars now are pretty sleek and sexy. Imagine what they're going to be like with a power unit that's, say, two-thirds the size of the current ones. It's going to be waffer thin. They're going to have that gap, baby. Uh, Peter Wright, uh, final thought from you. Uh, how, do, how do you feel about these potential shifts in engine? It's very political, isn't it? It's not purely it, about the racing. It is. Sorry, can I, can I just uh, tip my hat to, to Kyle there for the, um, you know, lovely to have a wafer-thin mint in the week that we lost one of the main stars and writers of Monty Python to actually Oof, get yes. that in there. I thought was very... I have to acknowledge that, sorry, but otherwise... <laughs> Um, but no, I just wanted to sort of say with regards to the engine discussion, um, and I, I just sort of wanted to sort of throw an idea up here. It's just that over the several missed apex discussions on this, and in particular in the ones that you have with um, Joe Sayward, very often I get the impression that Joe's perception is that he does not think that, for example, electric is necessarily the future, either in terms of motor racing or in terms of mass transit Really? I never heard him mention it. Well, no, exactly. But he, he he sort of says this, but then he doesn't really want to go into much detail. But he's the guy sitting down with a lot of the people that run the the, the car manufacturers. Yeah, he's not so a fan. He's not a fan. He, he's not. But I think it would be interesting to, you know, if we could perhaps get his more detailed thoughts on that and put it alongside some of these discussions with regards to future Formula One power units, it might give a, a an interesting perspective. Um, just because uh, as a whole, I find it interesting when you look at the current state of um, a lot of the car producers, Volkswagen, um, Tesla, are now building these massive new factories, both in the US and in Europe and around the world. Um, interestingly, and this is an interesting bit, where, you know, obviously Kyle's got the slight thing on the wall there about the thing of which we won't speak, but already Brexit. when... Um, as of next week, for example, uh, there will no, you know, the UK has no major uh, battery production uh, factory, which the government is looking at rectifying. But uh, you know, it, it's a key element for if we're going to go electric, we'll need these massive electric uh, battery factories. Now, it, that suggests though that you only do that if the future is electric. Joe says it isn't. So let let's see what what he thinks the future is, and then what our other esteemed technical uh, panelists think on that. I think it'd be a really interesting yeah. discussion for the future. Matt, I know you want to get in. I just I don't want to mischaracterize what Joe has said on this podcast. A lot of Joe's concerns 
revolve around infrastructure and is mm-hmm. the energy that we use to to fuel those electric cars is that also clean energy that they're the so just to make sure that we're not painting him as you know we're not okay boomering joe saywood here and certainly oh. i will invite him to bring uh, his comments to this uh, and absolutely, I wasn't. Sorry, apologies if that's how it came across. That wasn't was my intention. Sure. I was just making sure. No, not at all, Peter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Matt, and, and, uh, one other thing is that one of the reasons I mentioned that is that, for example, I have some clients in the electricity generation industry who say, if you think that you can actually have all the cars in the UK, for example, running through using the, the UK grid, it's virtually impossible because of the power generating capacity. So, you know, th- there's loads of issues around this. And I think it's a really interesting issue for us as fans of motorsport to look at um, in more detail. Trumpets. Oh my. I have some thoughts. Okay, tell us them. Let you you have the last word on this engine thing. Well, uh, where I'd like to start is Start? No, I said finish. <laughs> well, in order to finish I must start. Okay. You yeah, go settling kids. Right. Yeah. Time to go for coffee. Time for a break. Time for a break. No, uh fundamentally, what we're looking at, uh from a practical point of view, is how many cars are on the road right now that are already internal combustion, and how long will they run before they're off the road? We need interim solutions. And now if I'm looking at the FIA, I see that Formula One, MGUK, MGUH, two-cylinder plasma ignition, we're talking 60% thermal efficiency. If I look at WEC, I'm seeing hydrogen fuel cells, green hydrogen, back in the news, there's some very interesting Mm -hmm. developments there. And then if I look at Formula E, I see electric, fully electric vehicles. So I see in a way where the FIA is going with this. And then, of course, we add in the e-benzene and stuff like that. But what's really interesting, and we've not talked about, and and Peter, your comment about the new factories ties into this very much, is that the manufacturers are now building on shared platforms. And one of the things that Simmons referenced is asking the manufacturers, the current manufacturers, to get together Mm. and do research together for the next set of power unit regulations we're talking about, which will be in 2025 or 2026. And much like the aero mm. and chassis and sporting regula- uh, regulations we're seeing in 21, this represents a massive change for Formula One as a sport. And I personally think it's a good one. Okay, so m- part of my job here, I, I'm not just a pretty face. I am in charge of pacing and deciding when we've had too much of a good thing. When I had a dime bar cake earlier at a well-known showroom manufacturers. I was unable to do that. My intention was simply to have a small bite. Uh, Instead, I ate all of it and then I coveted my daughter's that she appeared to be struggling uh, to eat. No, no, dad, stay away from my dime bar cake. However, when it comes to matters of topics, I think we have had our fill on engines. That's a pretty good link. Uh, one of you is going to say another thing about engines, aren't you, Kyle? You are. Or are you going to say a thing about dime bar cake? Uh, well, engines, actually. Sorry. Um, I was just about to say. Maybe are you going back to engines? Another... Are you seriously no, going no, back to w- engines? W- but, but, but wait. I was just to say maybe we should do another episode about this because I'm sure Matt and I could talk about this subject all night at uh, Tech Time. I'd love to do an episode where we go into much more depth than we just have to sort of smooth over quickly here okay so uh a te- engine tech time with summers kyle and matt trumpets i think we set some kind of limit to this so t- tag missed apex podcast at missed apex f1 on twitter or me at spanners ready or email me spanners ready at gmail.com cumulatively what's a fair because i think what you're asking is quite a lot 
because basically I've just had a feeling of sick anxiety in my mouth at the thought of that conversation for an hour. So if I can get 15, that's not many, is it? 15 individuals out there to contact me through one of those sources, then it's a go. That's fair, Kyle. Yes, that's very fair. So everybody in the chat room, please start. No, no, no. Chat room doesn't count. Spamming spanners <laughs> about a two-stroke engine podcast. Please. Okay, okay. Chat room doesn't count. Thank you for thank you for being there. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Uh, that's absolutely fantastic. Um, right. Uh, let's talk, Matt. Let's move on. Let's talk a little bit about broadcasting because in F1, things have been a changing with Liberty Media coming in, and we wondered what they might do differently. The old F1 simply did not embrace new media. And I will tell you, there is a, has been a slight difference in how Liberty Media have engaged with, let's say, platforms like us. So we're not journalists and we never claim to be. We're not reporting the news. We're not, we're not taking press conferences and, and claiming that that is, uh, you know, that is our source of information. We are trying to kind of have the same discussions that people out there are having when they see the races, when they see the news. And we're kind of just, I don't know, we're just being, we're not leading, but we're having those conversations in a public forum. Yeah. I mean, if anything, we're more like pundits. There is news. Ooh, we I talk like about the news. Yeah. What do we think of the news? Where do we think it's headed? Are we social commentators? I've heard that term and I'd love it if we were that. That would be good. Uh, sure. Fine. Let's be that. Okay. Like Social that. commentators, but in F1. Liberty Media definitely has a different attitude towards, say, uh, uh, outlets such as ours. Whereas under the old regime, we would be ignored. Liberty actually takes the time to tell you why you're being ignored and engages with platforms such as us. I've had very nice communications with people telling us why we may or may not be right for particular events. And it's an engagement which hasn't existed in the past. So Liberty seem to actually, you know, at least acknowledge the existence of other forms of, you know, outside of mainstream media. And then two things that have happened to good effect is a, they have gone into podcasting themselves and they've, they've done this drive to survive thing on Netflix. The beyond the grid podcast figures are absolutely fascinating from a podcast point of view. Uh, what, what are the figures that they quoted? Uh, 43 episodes reaching up to 15 million listens in 2019. Now, mm. now that now, is right. Okay. Like, let's put those into some kind of, because they are spectacular figures. I just want to put some context in how spectacular those figures are. So I did some maths and by did some maths, I meant I asked my smart speaker, what is, uh, 15 million divided by 43. And it's like 380,000 or something like that. So 380,000 people downloading each episode of Beyond the Grid. Okay, so you have to get into your head how spectacular that is. Podcasting isn't that big. You think podcasting is big because you're in a bubble that where all your friends listen to podcasting. It's not that big. Okay, the BBC Checkered Flag podcast gets around 50,000 downloads for its race review. Missed Apex podcast has around... 25,000. If we're lucky, 28. We have had up to 30,000 people tune in, but regularly 25,000 people. Drive to Survive has absolutely come into the podcast market. Sorry, not Drive to Survive. Beyond the Grid has come into the podcast market and destroyed. Like Those figures are so big, they're almost unbelievably big. But have they come in and dominated the F1 podcast market or have they simply come in and grown it? And that's what I think they've done. They've come in, Matt, and they've gone, here's, here's Drive to Survive. Here's the, the Netflix audience. 
It's at the top of your Netflix page. You're now an F1 fan because we've made this good product. Oh, you want a podcast? Listen to interviews with the best drivers being asked if they're scared when they drive around the corners and if they're afraid to die. That's brilliant. And then we've had a kind of shuffle down effect from all of that. Yeah, well, clearly it shows you how important a platform can be in amplifying a show because the platform Formula One offers to any show that they put out branded as Formula One is the audience is tremendous, the potential audience. As a journalist or an occasional journalist, let's say, I would put on my skeptic hat a bit because I know that they say 15 million listens, not unique listens. You know, little things like that make me wonder, you know, you know and if they're going to be consistent yeah. in how they measure things, I'm fine with that. And I'm actually hoping that our media expert, Sarah Nickel, might be willing to talk about this in a future show. Uh, let's go to Peter Wright, actually. Look, uh, Peter, the way podcasts, listens and downloads are measured is definitely way up in the air. The industry as a whole is trying to standardize that. Uh, particularly Acast, who help us out as well with, with finding advertisers and finding people to, to help us fund this show. They have been at the forefront of, of really making sure that we are only counting like unique people downloading a thing. In the past, I've spoken to podcasters who have said to me, one particular podcast said that they got 150,000 downloads, but you can count things like feed hits where every time your device asks the provider, is there a new podcast? No. Is there one? No. Is there one? No. Is there one? No. Is there one? Yes. Then that counts as five. I doubt Beyond the Grid has made that kind of error, but certainly podcasting as a whole suffers from this metrics issue. Yeah, that inconsistency is a problem. And funnily enough, I mean, those are incredible figures for Beyond the Grid. I'd, I was just thinking it'd be really interesting to actually get a breakdown because, of course, they tend to churn out um, an episode roughly what every week, I think roughly during yeah. the season. Um, and, of course, some of them you get like, I think there was an interview with Bernie Eccleston they did towards the end of the season that I found absolutely fascinating for the detail in there. But do I tend to listen to every single one? No. Uh, and I'm sure that's the case for a lot of people. Sometimes if it's a driver that you really want to hear from, there was one great interview with Mika Hakkinen. Fantastic. I'm not necessarily going to want to listen to some of the lesser lights that might be on there. I'd be really interested to know which actual individual episodes are getting those high figures um, because they put a lot of resources into it, getting the sort of people that are on there that they have. And um, Whereas, for example, I anticipate that because, Mr. Apex, you're doing your race reviews and content, you've probably got a fairly regular amount there in terms of what you're saying your weekly yeah, figures are. Until I can imagine, until I bet, time, this yeah. is, I bet this is far more peaky and trophy for um, – for for uh for the beyond the grid as a result i bet that's far more up and down compared to yourselves for example uh yeah no ours is is very is very consistent actually you can mm. see obviously the race reviews are higher and then uh and then shows such as joe saywood when he comes on because joe brings his particular audience they're at a consistent level as well uh, obviously tech times down here because it's it's matt but uh yeah no but it is really sorry matt i'm only kidding uh tech tech time yeah, is, okay. is some of our best content but it doesn't have the same mass appeal I, I don't think that's unfair to say but matt it's undeniable that liberty media media are doing things with f1 and f1 media that that were unthinkable in the past the the big the big black mark is uh not being free to air which was is out of their control as much as they're saying so if it's out of their control presumably that's going to be wrestled back the second they can they're going to say no to that exclusive cable money and bring it straight back to free to air we're yet to see but everything else 
they are really paving the way. I think it's a balancing act because what you look at with pay TV is more revenue per viewer versus overall growing your audience. And where they are right now, they're saying they had their highest global TV audience ever since 2012. And with pay TV, you get more resources invested. I mean, think about Sky coverage versus BBC coverage when it was free to air. Or like even what we get here, where where the audience is still growing on ESPN, it's basically like Sky without any of the any of the Sky Pad or anything like that. Start of the race, end of the race, done. Like all all the little extras that you see on a Sky broadcast, you don't necessarily see uh, on a bare bones free to air because free to air they they have to make their money um, on on the commercials they run in and around the viewers they bring in. So they won't invest as much because they have to keep more of what they earn as profit. So I think it's a balancing act for them. But you're right. Um, the Facebook, Twitter, Instagram reach uh, increased tremendously over 2018. Um, the website users increased. Even F1 TV, which has been notorious, sees more users and more views and more time spent. And just when you say about that in terms of the, the figures, it has gone up certainly for social media. When you think of the virtually standing start that Formula One had compared to most other sports. Um, I'd be interested actually, though, Matt, I mean, particularly for you in, in the US market there. Do you happen to know if what those figures are like comparatively with something like, say, um, NFL or, or NBA? Because, you know, they've had they, they were doing social media in a far bigger way for a lot longer. Um, so, I mean, those figures are quite interesting. But I'm, I'm wondering, are they still quite small compared to other sports? Apologies for putting you on the spot there. But uh, it illustrates that I think that interesting is Formula One still trailing compared to other sports. No, Matt, you give us all the major sports figures now. That's that's part of your role here. Go. All right, I will give you those. Just guess. I can no give no you one's going to check. No one's going to check here if you want, um, <laughs> because there's a nice little chart. Oh no, it's percentage growth, not overall. That's right. What I will, yeah, t- uh, what, I, what I can tell you, Matt, is that our audience, when because we get good demographic things from YouTube and Acast, we can see that uh, the US audience percentage has grown. So as we've grown. And we have grown a lot since, since I think Drive to Survive has had a massive effect on F1 people listening to podcasts. The percentage now is that the biggest single country is the US. And that is the first time this season at, for, for what, six, six seasons of covering Formula One on podcasting. The American audience is now our biggest. So there we go. And I think that's really interesting when you look at the fact that um, I think that's helped demographically as well. When you looked at the Formula One fan base a few years ago, it was overwhelmingly male and getting older progressively, whereas I think now it's opened out and we've got an awful lot more younger people coming to the sport, which was in risk of going away a few years ago. So this is really turning that round. I do have statistics for that. Um, according to their press release that in the markets they monitor, uh, 62% of the new fans in the last two years, which again, I don't know why they chose two instead of one, but I'll leave that for now, uh, are under the age of 35. And those best markets are China, Brazil, Mexico, US, and India. And that would be 34.6 million new uh, viewers under the age of 35, if I've understood that statistic correctly. So they are making inroads. And I would agree with you. I think drive to survive was key mm. in this turnaround. It was the most genius thing that Bratches did. Yeah, it was, it was great. And also it was Bernie's absolute defiance against all social media. He hated it. And he said it, I think he actually said in an interview once that it's, it's not going to be in the future and it's a fad and it will flop. So Liberty are doing brilliant things doing that 
really pursuing the social media side of it and allowing drivers to film a little bit more in a paddock and to do fun things which they weren't doing before. Bernie was very Ron Dennis, very McLaren in that sense. Um, I think, but now with the younger audience, it's brilliant. We needed that. We were at risk of turning into lawn bowls type thing with a, an, an aging audience at some point, which yeah, you'd kind of worry for them over the winter. But um, yeah, it's brilliant to see the embracing of um, the embracing of social media, and it can only be a great thing for the sport. And it's hopefully going to crack the America's market, which Bernie tried so hard to crack. And I think the whole thing of Drive to Survive just shows how that has opened up massive new markets. And um, I must admit, I see a lot of Formula One anyway. And I, But if anyone on our live stream or listening hasn't actually looked at it yet, I can strongly urge that you do. Because even if you're a really in-depth fan, there is so much more to take away from that show. There really is. Uh, there's tons to take away from it. Uh, Formula One has the fastest growing social media of any of the major sports. I think in terms of overall participants, there's they've got loads of room to grow but with regards to things they're doing fan fest also have proved to be remarkably prop remarkably remarkably amazingly popular and i'm delighted to say it looks like they're coming to new york next fall guys uh, thank you very much to my panel today kyle power not just not just a moustache, not just a beard. However, I was absolutely horrified when you were suggesting that for your BRKC performance, you were thinking of actually shaving that. I don't want to know. I don't want to know what's under there. I found it hilarious that you said you weren't going to turn up if I was going to shave. I was under a lot of pressure from Jeansy Banjean, who said he was actually going to bring a razor with him to shave me while we were there. (laughs) He he, he is totally adverse to beards and face fuzz, but I liked your staunch response to it. Yeah, no, I I just don't think it's acceptable. You are who you are, and you are now on uh, Twitter. For the first time I in ages. In- so at Kyle Power F1, you are responding to that. You're, you're doing quite well for a later in life tweeter. Indeed. I'm still to have patience with me. I'm still upgrading for my typewriter. I'm not the greatest fan of social media, but I'm trying to engage with it a bit more. I'm trying to do a Liberty and not a Bernie. So yeah, bear with me. I will be, be more active in the coming months. Thank you very much. And Peter Wright did at digital law UK. On Twitter, you're a, you're a more experienced tweeter. You're always there trying to work out ways to make us have to press extra buttons just to look at a website that says, "Oh, you won't you won't believe what a Mina Savari looks like now." And you try and click, and then there's eight buttons you have to press. Like I say, GDPR wasn't entirely down to me, well, but indeed, I try and I, I try and you know. It, it's a matter of always trying to help people to actually be able to do business online is is the thing. So we help people when it comes to e-commerce. And indeed, the social media is part of that. So at Digital Law UK on the Twitters. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And my podcasting brother in arms at MattPT55. Do follow his wife as well, as well at A Weaver Writes. But Matt, we are uh, filling up for the karting. I've made a few admin, not goofs, but I was so scared of not selling uh, seats that I got people to to get in touch with me early to reserve seats. And that is all shuffling out now. I, I, to be fair, I think we could have sold 70 seats this year. We fill up 48. In the past, we've struggled to fill them up at all. So I'm just shuffling through now the early email uh, emailers, the people who got in touch with me super early. And then I'll be getting to the people who've got in touch with me subsequently. So please have patience. Uh, there will be some tickets up for grabs. I think it, when it shakes out, we're going to have two or three spots uh, left to fill for me to contact those people. Matt. 
I was going to say, the more you run them, the more people want to come because they are amazing to attend. Even if you don't race, it's just so very, very much fun to be there in the atmosphere and to see and talk with other people who are a part of the community of this show. Yeah, and obviously there was a big gap from the last one because it's the cold season. We like the outdoor events. No offense to indoor karting as well uh, at all. However, our events are more suited to outdoor karting. So we'll be going to Buckmore Park again on April 25th. You can go to our YouTube channel, search for Missed Apex Karting to see highlights of our last event. We've got loads of good stuff lined up for this one as well. It's wide open though, because Bradley Philpott and Alex Van Jean are not attending. Bradley's going to be going to the, yeah, Carl's celebrating. Carl, you're probably going to win it. Uh, uh, Brad is going to be attending the Polish national championships uh, as part of his his tour of the national championships which is very exciting it's been great to have brad there so we can see the, the very highest standard that is possible in those conditions however it's going to be a far more open event uh, on this occasion so i think it's going to be fantastic uh, however so i'm mad at brad for bailing on that however i have to say quickly he is matt we we underestimate just how much of a great driving instructor and a driving communicator he is as well as just being fast on four wheels well i would have no idea because he's coached you and he's coached Treeface and you and somehow somehow he's managed to now miss out on his next opportunity to coach me i'm trying yeah. not to take this personally but i'm kind of beginning to <laughs> so yeah he did like he was we, we have these headsets kyle which are, you you are a fan of the intercoms aren't you Oh yeah, big. I, I always talk to myself during the race, anyway. So it's going to be. I'm really looking forward to be able to talk to everyone else yeah, <laughs> whilst I'm racing as well. At Miss Apex now, we will have two helmets that are fully mic'd up, so someone can just take the the microphone helmet, and we'll have full communication between the commentator and drivers, which really worked well. We're going to do it much more this time as well. But he has used that to to train me and take some lap time off me. He also did it to train my son today. Uh, down at Formula Fast Cadets. And I really messed up, guys. I just have to, I really messed up. First competitive racing for my son. And I said to him, look, he's 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 really small. So I said, look, none of the race suits fit you. Start winning some races, win a couple of races at these cadets, and we'll look at getting you a race suit. So I'm there thinking, right, okay. Sorry, sorry, cover pants. What are they called, Carl? Coveralls. Cover, cover race pants. Cover cover suits. Cover Just suits, never use yeah. the word pants, please. Okay, so again. race suits. So I said, I'll get you a race suit if you start winning some races. So that was my first mistake. The second mistake was accepting Brad's kind invitation to come and coach him because he, Brad turned up there and just took like two seconds off his time and he won two of the three races. So I am now in the hole for getting Treeface uh, a cover suit. So if you would like your logo on Treeface's race suit, I don't know, t- 25 quid. Get your logo on Treeface's race suit and we'll talk about you here on the show as well. We also managed to offend some other dads, Carl. The racing instinct, right? Mm-hmm. So next week on Missed Apex podcast, we are going to have a bit of a driving masterclass here. So we're going to have Alex Van Jean and Bradley Philpot talking through everything from karting, Formula One, road cars, track days, sim racing, iRacing, how to get the best out of your, your vehicle and uh and how to overtake how to pass how to go wheel to wheel and the mistakes that everybody makes very useful entertaining chat however i i had said to my son i said today is not about winning races it's not about overtaking people okay it's not about being competitive it's about surviving don't make a menace of yourself and just go out there on track and enjoy yourself as soon as bradley philpott's on the communications the second 
the boy gets behind another car. He starts screaming in front of the other kid's dad in earshot. You're faster. You're faster than him. Get him. Get him. Go on. And then they made contact and Brad's screaming. He went, it's his fault. He's slow. And I'm looking across at the other dad go, yep. Hi. <laughs> nice to meet you. But the level of uh, driving communication that, that Brad and Alex have is well worth it. So please do tune in. Matt, we've had a busy chat room for the off season. We've had up to 300 people concurrently watching us. Some great comments. Do we have any candidates for comment of the week? Uh, we have many. Oh, you could hear me fumbling around for the button. I know I was slow, but like, there's no other reason to slow down as much as I just did, unless you're unless you're looking for a button. Let ah, me do. So it. That's how you feel when I talk. Okay. <laughs> Let me do it more confidently. Now it's time for comment of the week. Comment of the week. Well, I'm assuming the comment by Patrick Walsh, Matt is currently killing me with his eyes, and Stuart Neal, the American audience for Mr. Apex, is entirely down to Trump's hair, will be disallowed because they are personal you can't compliments. Just flatter Matt. Yes, yes. Sad but true. Um, then we will go with Eye Hammer, three guys, two strokes, one talk. No. In, in, <laughs> in favor of our what? Yes. Is there a problem with that? that no, like, fine. innocent. There's yeah. no possible That's it by those. Yes. Okay. Um uh, in in favor of our our two stroke engine talk, uh, Chris Fonseca is in with future cars will be powered by Elon Musk's ego, and thus the world is saved. Car which wish, made me laugh. I wish I had opinions on current affairs or politics. <laughs> Don't you though? <laughs> nope. Um, uh, we got that in. We got that in. Uh, I hammer again. Will Racing Point be renamed to Sorry GP if Latifi joins Stroll for their lineup, thus making it all Canadian? No way. There's there's no way those two are alphas in the making. As that that level of wealth, I don't think Formula One, from a competitive point of view, is ready. The these are the pre quakes. There is going to be a billionaire earthquake hitting F1 in the middle of this decade. I have two more to go. Dadster, Alonzo had a performance clause, which meant he was never allowed to be happy. No, he can't win. He said that my general conversation was more boring than Matt talking about tires, which insulted us both in one, <laughs> one fell swoop. And finally, I have to mention Mark Greenhow. If GDPR is Peter Wright, then I don't want to be wrong. Oh, <laughs> I mean, that is sick. That was pretty good. Okay, cool. Well, Matt, who's the winner of this week's comment of the week? Well, judging by Peter's reaction, it has to be none other than Mark Greenhow. If GDPR is Peter Wright, then I don't want to be wrong. Comment of the week. What a way to end the show. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready. Follow me at Spanners Ready, the show at Mist Apex F1. We're on Facebook. We've got a group and a page. Just search for us everywhere. YouTube. Join us in the live chat. Support us if you feel like supporting a podcast. MissedApexPodcast.com for all our stuff. If you want to support us monetarily, it's Patreon.com forward slash MissedApex. Or you could just go ahead and tell your friends that when you watch Formula One, when you hear news about Formula One, you want to chat with it, with your friends at Missed Apex Podcast. You want to come into the chat room and you want to listen what we want to say you want to listen no hang on i can say that better give me another chance that you want to tune in to listen to what we have to say wherever we see you next be brave because wounds heal chicks dig scars and glory lasts forever
They can't all be good outros. Most of them are good. I don't know. I felt the pressure on that one. It's because it's because Peter Wright. You're like a proper grown up. That's that is that's what's hurting me. You've like got a grown up job and everything. Well, you say that. <laughs> Seriously, I so enjoyed uh, two weeks ago when you were saying about the fact that you're now doing audio-related things full-time, so you're podcasting, your radio, your voiceovers and everything. And I think it's great you're actually, from a few years ago, you're now doing what you've always wanted to do. Oh. I say that because seven years ago, I took the choice that I wanted to, I didn't want to be working for other people. I wanted to run, run my own law firm, look after my clients the way I wanted to. And it's tough for a long time and still is in many regards, but... The point is, it's doing what you want to do, and you're doing what you want to do. And I think it's absolutely fantastic and a great example to all of your listeners as well. Oh. Do what you want to do. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.